Hey, good to have you. Uh, welcome to Village Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Mark. Good to have all you guys here. Okay, uh, jump in, open up your Bibles uh, to Matthew. Uh, chapter 19 is where we are. A uh, very important passage, actually, has a lot to do with money. And so uh, if you like money, if you hold money tightly, uh, this one's going to be hard on you. And so, which we all do, of course, we're all a little greedy. Greed's the kind of sin and the kind of idol that's very hard to predict. It's very hard to actually know in yourself that you're greedy. Uh, if, you, if you cheat on your wife, you kind of know it. It's not by accident. You kind of wake up beside someone. You don't go, hmm, did I just cheat? Oh, okay, I'm in the bed with you. You. There's no real question. You just cheated. Uh, but greed is fascinating because none of us sees ourselves as greedy, right? None of us actually goes, hey, I think I'm a greedy person. Uh, I think I hoard money too much. Jesus is about to meet a guy and call out this idol, and he's about to tell him, hey, listen, money has become the issue in your life. And if you really want to join the kingdom movement that I'm laying down, and I've been laying down for 19 chapters, then you got to deal with money. You got to deal with this idol in your life. And so it, his, his, it's a pretty famous story. It's called The Rich Young Ruler. Um, so here's what happens. Uh, chapter 19 of Matthew, pick it up in verse 16. It says this, Behold, a man came up to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is a fascinating question. It's a beautiful question. It's a question that comes from a religious mindset, which many of us have, where we're saying to ourselves, what do I actually need to do to impress a holy God? What do I need? What good deed do I actually need to do in order to get salvation? Comes from a religious idea. Now, what Jesus is about to answer him, he's about to push back on that, and he's about to talk about the idea that um, God actually wants our money. He wants the idols of our heart, and there's going to be things that we need to become, uh, what we might deem as limits in our life. And my daughter was asking me this week, she said, why does God put limits on things? My oldest daughter... She's like, when I read the Bible, when I read Jesus, when, I, when I, I go through these stories and it seems like God's always kind of saying, here's what you can't do. And why does he do that? Why is Jesus about to give this guy a list? You shall not murder. You sh look at verse 18. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is God always saying, well, here's what we can't do. And I sat down with my daughter and I said, listen, here's the beautiful thing about God. He knows what is best for us. And what we deem as limitations, he's actually doing for our good and our freedom. And I said, remember these, the, the fish that you had. Now, my, I'm going to talk about uh, another animal or two or three that we might have killed in the last uh, week. But I'll talk about that in a second because this is becoming a theme in my life. But there was, a, there was a fish that my daughter had years ago and it had a fish bowl and we were moving and, uh, and I left it in the house and left the door open of this little condo in the middle of January. And my daughter woke up. She said, hey, daddy, where's my fishy? Where's my little Jonah fish? And I said, oh my gosh. So I ran back to the house and the thing was frozen solid all right, in that water. So I'm just awful with animals and you're gonna hear why in a few minutes. But, uh, and so the idea though, a fish in water, when it's in the water, I said, picture that fish before I killed it, Sienna. When it was in the water in the fishbowl, if you would have taken it out of the water, what would have happened? It would have died. Because, okay, so if the fish is saying to itself, give me freedom, don't put limitations on my life, don't put me in this bowl, don't put me in this water, I like to be free, and freedom for me means getting out of the water, it would have meant death. 
And so what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to think, give me freedom in every area. Let me do whatever I want with my sex life and let me define sexuality because that's what freedom means. That's what we've begun to believe as a culture. Let me do anything I want with my money. And what I get to do with my money is define what freedom with money is. And any kind of limitation, any kind of exhortation, any kind of teaching that doesn't have me have a bigger house, nicer cars, better things is a limitation and it's a slavery. And what Jesus constantly is telling us is, He's saying you have it backwards. When God puts limitations on you, it's for your freedom. It's for your good. It's so you can breathe. It's so you never shrivel and die. Spiritually speaking, you and I have a massive problem. And it's that we are separated from God. And when God comes out of the gate and he starts saying, here's the way to live your life, it's for our good. And so this guy raises this question. What do I actually have to do to get eternal life? Now, who is this guy? Uh, when Luke and Mark both tell this story, Matthew says he's a man. Luke and Mark fill in the details, and he's, the rich, he's famously called the rich young ruler. Uh, Luke and Mark tell us that he's rich and young. And so the reality is picture, and I mean, this is all of us, but picture a Mark Zuckerberg, a young guy, very rich, very well off, very educated. Picture Leonardo DiCaprio, right? He's just, he's young, he's hip. He has no needs in his life at all. Leo only works with Scor Scorsese now because he's the best. So he's like, I don't, I don't work with directors that aren't the best because I'm Leo. That's this guy. He doesn't need anything in his life at all. He's rich. He's successful. He has a great reputation. He's educated. And so he comes to Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal? He asks this question. He first of all, he calls him teacher, which he's trying to butter Jesus up a little bit. And in Luke and Mark, he calls him good teacher. All right. Hey, good teacher. It's like, oh, someone called me good. Let me, what would you like, sir? All right. So he's buttering him up. Why? Why do we do that? Why butter up Jesus? Why tell Jesus how great he is in this moment? Because he's scared Jesus is going to call something out of him. So he wants to get him in a place where if I say nice things to you, then maybe you won't ask me to do something I don't want to do. You'll leave my money alone and you'll just tell me that I need to do some stuff. Hey, do some religious stuff. Go to church. Give some money to the church. Make sure you go here. Make sure you help some old ladies. Make sure you do good deeds. And then the guy's like, okay, hopefully that's all he's going to say if I really butter him. And this is what we tend to do in churches. We tend to go, hey, uh, I hope I can come to church and get a nice sermon, four points, tie it up in a bow, go home, have some lunch, have a nice day, come back next week. I really hope the church is there to encourage me, to help me along in my life, to give me a nice thought for the day. That's what we hope will happen. And if you've been at Village Church for any length of time, you know that's not what we do here. <laughs> what we do is we do the kind of thing that Jesus does here, is he doesn't answer back and tell everybody they're fine. He answers back and says, do you understand the spiritual state you're in right now? Do you understand I'm going to call everything out of you because that's what discipleship is? And this is what Jesus does. He looks at him, he says, I want to be hard on you. I want to put the cost of discipleship really, really high so that we understand what we're getting into. Why does he answer? Why does he look to him and actually do this? Because like you and I, even though we're rich and we're rich compared to everybody else in the world, right? Even if you're not, even if you're like a student and you're like, I'm not rich. I know that guy's rich. You com don't compare yourself to people around here. Compare yourself to people around the world and you are very rich. Like you got to understand when you go, hey, I, you know, when I took water out of my tap and it poured down, it's like, how far do you have to walk to get water? That's how most of the world asks the question. And so the, the thing is, is that it's fascinating that this guy 
And verse 16 is even asking this question. Because if he has everything, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You see what he's asking? He's asking spiritual questions. Why? Because you can have all the money in the world and you still have this need in you. This is what Jesus says to him. He goes, you're rich, you're successful, you're young, and yet you're asking a deep question. Why? Because none of those things satisfy you. None of those things are good enough. None of those things made you fulfilled in life. When we're young, we chase everything. We chase sex. We chase money. We chase reputation. We chase, we chase family. Thinking all of those things are going to bring us fulfillment and happiness, and we're never going to have to ask the question, hey, give me, give me satisfaction in life. Give me fulfillment. Jesus goes, look at you. You're still asking this question. Look at, look at this week, Tiger Woods, right? My golf hero. He's a... He's hit rock bottom, right? Arrested for being completely drugged up, driving his car around. Three o'clock in the morning, he can't even walk straight on a line. He doesn't even know what state he's in. He's in Florida. They say, where are you? He's like, I'm in California. He's in his car. He's, listen to this. His life is completely derailed. He lost his, I mean, his kids through a divorce. He, uh, he, uh, he cheated on his wife many, many times. He's worth a billion dollars. The most successful person in sports history, and he still needed to have more women. Still needed to go after things. Why? Because Jesus is saying you can have all the money in the world, all the success in the world, and you're still going to come to me and ask, but what about eternal life? What do I need to do to get my spirit connected back to the God of the universe? Because there's something stirring in me. Something ain't right about the universe. Something's wrong. I need to answer the question of my own fulfillment. And if you keep going after things of the world, they will disappear and it will not fulfill you. And so this guy comes with this question, what good? Now, it's fascinating that he says, what good must I do? What good must I do? Because he's asking, of course, the religious question. I want to do something that's going to impress God. That's how many people function. In fact, every worldview that exists in the world is that approach. How can I do something that's going to make the God of the universe, if he exists, actually like me? That's what the pilgrimages are about. You take a pilgrimage, God will love you and accept you. That's what killing the infidels is about. Right? We saw that again. Recently, in London, attacks, Manchester, attacks, taking trucks, rolling through, through people, killing people. Why? Out of religious commitment to an ideal. If you take pilgrimage, if you, do, if you do these eight noble truths and you get to a point of enlightenment, you have to do things and then God will like you and save you and give you eternal life and be happy with you. And then you can go, what good deed must I do? Even if you were raised in the church, you do this. right? Even if you are raised in the church, you're like, if I could just get all my Awana badges... Right? If I only, if I never watch a rated R movie, if I only do PG-13, and if it's rated R, then it's Passion of the Christ, because that's Christian. Outside that, I really stick to the rules, because then God will like me. Then God will be happy if I memorize these scriptures, if I do the right things. Now, even if you're not religious, even if you're just exploring Christianity, and you're just like, hey, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I don't really know what I believe. Even that, you live out religiously. You subtly ask this question he's asking, what good deed must I do? Because here's what you do. You define your life out against everybody else and how immoral they are. And so you'll read the news and say, I can't believe those people killed those people. That is disgusting. I'm glad I'm not one of those. I can't believe Tiger Woods. What a disgrace. Immoral, cheating around his wife, doing 
medication from surgeries, crashing his car. I can't believe this. Can you believe this? Disgust. Kathy Griffin holding up a head of the president, all bloody. Disgusting. My goodness, I'm glad I'm not these people. It's so easy. Even if you're an atheist, you're religious because you know who you're not. And you're going to fight the man. You can't believe that CEO did that. You think the corporations are bad. You've got to save the whales. What are you trying to do? What good deed must I do to have fulfillment? You're all asking the same question. Jesus is about to blow it all up. He's about to say, no, no, no. That's not the way to do it. Listen, so here's his answer. Verse 17. He said to him, this is Jesus now, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. It's fascinating He's taking the focus off of him and moving it onto who? God. He, he's taking the focus off, hey, I know you're asking a question about you and the life you need to, something you need to do because your whole life orbits around you. But now I actually want to start talking about God. There's only one who's good and his name is, and he's, he's God and he's totally perfect. And so why are you talking about you, bro? Let's talk about what actually matters. Because if all you do is talk about you, you're going you're gonna to not succeed. You're going to actually get empty in life at some point. Um, it's very fascinating to me, the modern evangelistic movement and the kind of thing that we call people to is so small and so shallow that I'm not even sure when people become Christians, whether they're actually becoming Christian. Because the, the thing in, in, the, in the New Testament, we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, is a call to discipleship, where you have to, you know, sacrifice. There's a cost to this thing. What we've made it is here, say this prayer, and that's it. And Jesus comes out of the gate, and he's like, wait a minute. What are we talking about here? Why do we make it that easy? Because it's about us. It's about this little thing that we need to do and so what we do is we have uh, good-looking pastors and emotional music, and, and we try to do all the things, and then if we could just get you to say this incantation, then we're good and we can move on with life. Problem is, is that's all human-focused. Jesus goes, hey, you want to talk about God for a second? You know, there's a whole group of people, and many at Village as well, but the sociologists call de-churched. And what de-churched people are, it's a group of people, like some of you, who grew up in the church. You went to church growing up, and then at some point you got through high school, you got through youth group, you went to college, you learned about drinking, you learned about sleeping around, you learned about whatever, and you said, man, this church thing sucks, so I'm going to move on with my life. And you went on. And then you had kids of your own, and you thought, my goodness, what I don't want to happen is my kid to get, you know, uh, you know totally off the rails, start into drugs and things in their own life, and then kill me in my sleep. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going back to church. And you packed the kids in the car, and they were babies, and you wanted to make sure that they got down and they heard the Bible stories. So you're really hoping that they become good moral people. Problem is, is that's what happened with you, and it didn't work past high school. So what happened? Why did you leave to begin with? Because you were pitched a version of Christianity that was about you. What must I do? What, what's my little thought of the day? And what you weren't taught is the, look at what he does. How does he change subjects here? Let's stop talking about you. Let's talk about God. What you weren't taught is the character and the nature of God over and over and over again. So that when the life started to fall apart, so that when the husband left, so that when a child got sick, so that when that car wreck happened, so that when life completely went off the rails for you you had nothing but little devotional thoughts for yourself and your faith you or you had faith uh, maybe in a leader 
Some, some pastor. I wasn't raised in the church. So people tell me these stories about when they were kids and the, the senior pastor would come off the pulpit and he'd walk around in the foyer and everyone's, all, and they were little kids and they would hide behind their mommies because it was like this, he was a big deal. It's like, oh my goodness, the pastor's near me. I can feel his holiness radiating onto me. Run away, children. And we talk about the senior pastor at dinner and he was like this, you know, this big thing. Here's the problem with that. Men make terrible gods. And so when that guy sleeps with his secretary and steals money, your faith gets disrupted because you had faith in a person. You had, a faith, you had faith in a leader, not, not Jesus, not the scriptures, not the God behind the leader, the leader himself. Always will let you down. Always will destroy you. Because Jesus is like, I don't want your focus to be on you. I want your focus to be on me. Who's good? What are you, why are you talking about you? So he says, let's talk about God. If you would enter, there is only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Right? Do, do these things. Now he knows what's going to go on here. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. I love that, by the way. <laughs> I'm perfect. I don't need anything. I'm good. I've done all of these. Don't murder. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Lays out the commandments. Now, some of us might look at these commandments and go, well, you know, these commandments, I don't understand what's the point of God kind of giving us all these rules. Here's the thing. God wants to put these rules down for us partly to do what this guy doesn't catch up on, which is Jesus is using these to put a mirror up to his face to say, Here's how in desperate need of the gospel you really are, but you don't know it because you're so enthralled in yourself. You think you've done everything right. Let me hold the law up to you and see how good you actually are. This is what the purpose of the law always was. The first thing the law does in the book of Exodus, when Moses walks down the mountain with it, what's the first commandment? It's going to be, do not worship anything other than me. That's going to be the first thing he comes down the mountain with. He comes down with the tablets, and what is Israel literally doing on the ground? Worshiping a golden calf. They're like, and Moses is like, all right, play it. What? What? Happening right now? And then they say this crazy, hilarious thing. Read the book of Exodus. They say, oh, shoot. We threw some gold in there and out jumped this calf. Actually what they say to him. And Moses, oh, okay, well, that makes sense then. And so he comes down and, and what does the law do? What is its purpose? The first thing it does is it points at Israel and says, you already broke me before we even got started. This is how much of a disaster you are. This is how the law works in our life. Think about it like your spouse, all right? The, your spouse plays the role of law in your life. And this is what I mean. There's things that happen in our life where we might look at our spouse and go, my goodness, it feels like they're put here to destroy me, right? On a daily basis, you're like, my gosh, it's like this person was put on the planet to kill my soul, this week, I got a phone call from my wife. So I told you a couple weeks ago about the two dead birds. Two dead birds, boom, couldn't figure it out. A couple days before that, she had bought three chicks, chickens. Drove an hour and a half, 
One chicken per child, per, per, I have three daughters. Per, so they all named them and they all get close to them and start loving them. They probably actually brought a disease in that killed my birds. That's probably actually what happened. That's what I figured out through my CSI investigation. <laughs> all right. I think they brought in the avian flu or something and killed the birds. But these chicks come into the house. So now my daughter's got these three chicks. And they're loving these little chicks and these chicks are growing and then they were heating them and putting lamps on them and then uh, they named them. Here's Tough Nut. You know, Tough Nut. That's the name, the chick. So Tough Nut is it. And they're following them around the backyard. They're playing with them. They're giving them baths. All their friends get connected to them. Awesome. Literally in a meeting on Tuesday, dealing with 40 things at one time, stressed out, and I see my phone ring. Hello? It's my wife. <laughs> I'm like, what? I hear the kids crying in the background. I'm like, what? What happened? She's like, all the chicks are dead. <laughs> Talking about. It's like we're running a butcher shop. I said, how is this? What are you talking about? And she's like, well, we had to move them outside and we had this plastic lid over the thing. And it was, it was locked, like you'd have to unlock it, and it was locked, and raccoons came up onto the thing, opened the thing, and just mauled them to death. Just, like, didn't pick them up and walk them away and then kill them. Just ate their heads off all over our porch. My porch looked like a crime scene. I'm not kidding you. There was blood everywhere. Chicken parts fur or feathers or whatever. <laughs> like body everywhere. Like to the point where for two days, my wife had to keep all the blinds shut so my kids wouldn't be traumatized by the blood scene out front. We had to power wash our entire porch of chicken death. Now, I'm on the phone and she says this. And what's my response? You should never have got those chickens. What is wrong with you? Why would you do? We were not ready for chickens. Why did you do this? And I'm sitting there in that moment going, honestly, has this person been put in my life to kill me, to just destroy me? She does, I come home and we, all of a sudden, we, well, I'm running a hobby farm. Why did you make these decisions? And you know what I... What she said? Click. <laughs> because here's the thing. From my vantage point, I'm in a stressful moment. What's her role in that moment? She's playing role of law at this point. All right? Just like, look how messed up she is. Man, humankind's a disaster. That's what's going through my head as I'm debriefing the decisions she's made without me. What she's feeling is, who's this clown? Because what's she wanting me to say? Oh, man, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry you had to come across this murder scene. I'm sorry. What can I do to help? I'll, I'll cancel a meeting. I'll come home and come for the girls. That's what she's wanting me to say. So from her vantage point, she thinks I've been put there to destroy her. So she spends the day mad at me. You're sitting there at times going about your marriage. Satan has put this person in my life to kill me. And what Jesus says is, no, God put that person in your life to show you a mirror of look how much you need the gospel. Look how much grace you need. 
Look how you break laws every day against me. <clears throat> Look what you've done. Look at how needy you are. This is why, why does Jesus, see, this is why he's listing these. He's saying, don't you know your own need? See, here's the problem. This guy knew exactly what he didn't have, all right, and what he wanted, which was what? Eternal life. What he didn't know is what he had that he had to get rid of, which was what? Sin. So Jesus throws the law up and goes, have you done this? Do you understand how broken you are? Do you need a mirror to show you how needy you are for the grace of God in your life? Are you perfect? And so he says, verse 20, yes, I am. All these I have kept. Now we know how Jesus has already defined all of these back in chapter five and six, and we've been reading the Gospel of Matthew, because he said, hey, murder's not actually murder anymore. If you hate your brother, you're already guilty of murder. Hey, adultery is not adultery anymore. If you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. He jacks it up so that every single person is guilty. Why? Because Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, if you don't understand your own depravity, your own sin, you'll never want to fly to Christ. See, if we just do a modern day expression of come to Jesus, all we're saying is, hey, add him to your already focused existence. Just add something. But Jesus never does that. He always says, yes, I want you to add me, but there's something you got to do first, which is what? There's stuff you got to subtract. There's sin in your life you got to start walking away from. So what's this guy's sin? All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Uh-oh. 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, here's what happens. Jesus goes after his idol. Jesus goes after the thing that he worships more than God. An idol, it can be a good thing like money, that becomes a God thing. It becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes the thing that you love and worship. It becomes a thing that if you, th if you lost it, you would honestly be the most devastated thing in your life. So it could be money. For some of you, it could be a, uh, a children. It could be a spouse. It could be uh, your reputation, whatever it is. But for a lot of us, it's money. For a lot of us, it's possessions. It's having nice things. It's comfort. And Jesus pushes on that. And he says, are you willing to give it? See, this isn't normative for everybody. He doesn't have this conversation with every single person. He goes after the thing that this guy has a problem with. He doesn't say every person that wants to become a Christian in life needs to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor or else we're in a lot of trouble, right? Or else you're like, dude, I gotta go to a different church. This is insane. I cannot sell everything I have and just take Jesus' word for it that that's what he wants to do. No, no, no. You have to put it all in context. He doesn't say this to uh, Nicodemus in John 3. He tells Nicodemus he's got to be born again. He doesn't say anything about money. Why? Because he has these things. Because for Nicodemus, that was his idol. He wanted to hold on to his religious. See, Jesus wants to come at every person and go, what's your idol? What's the thing that I'm going to have to call out of you that you got to give it up? Because this isn't just about adding me. It's about subtracting the thing that's killing you spiritually. And for some of us, we're the rich young ruler. It's money. And you need to give it up. 
What's Jesus doing? He, he's going back and he's teaching us what sociologists now teach us about that study in the village in Africa where they were trying to get those monkeys and they couldn't figure out how to kill these monkeys and get rid of them. So finally a guy said, I know how to do it. And he took a coconut and he cut out a little hole about the size of a quarter and he put a bunch of uh, almonds in there. And then he just stood back and he waited. He chained the uh, coconut down and a bunch of monkeys came scrambling down the tree, put their hand in the coconut, grabbed the almonds, but then couldn't get it out. And what's the only way to get? And then they just walk up and they just bag the monkey and they just walk away with him because he wouldn't, what does he need to do in order to get free? Let go. He lets go. He won't do it. He's holding on to coconut his whole life because he won't let go of the almonds. That's some of you. You're enslaved to this. You won't let go of the money. You won't let go of the possessions. This stuff has defined you and you're wondering why you don't feel free. You're wondering why you're scared and you have scarcity philosophy. You're wondering why you can't grow in the kingdom. You're wondering why you can't. Jesus goes to money issue. This is more important to God than God to you. Having a comfortable life, having more square footage, having a perfect existence is more important to you than kingdom. And he's about to go on and say, it's impossible then for a rich person who worships money to get into the kingdom. Something's got to happen in our hearts, all of our hearts and our minds and our lives to kill that idol, to go, man, is this, is this me? Is this me? Is Jesus saying the same thing to me that I got to figure out a way to be generous? I got to figure out a way. Always the question is, are you, you know, um, there's a, there, I mean, this, this is, guys, a negative example of someone who couldn't give it up and he walks away. There's a positive example in, uh, in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, uh, for those of you raised in church, you know the story about little Zacchaeus. And he, had, he was so short, he had to claw, crawl up a tree, you know, so he could see Jesus. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. So he had to look at Jesus and crawl up a tree. And he was rich. He was the chief tax collector in that city. Um, very rich. And he actually, go read Luke 19, does something beautiful. He does on his own and his own idea, what Jesus commands this guy to do. He sells half of his possessions and gives them to the poor. And then Jesus goes to his house, and what does he say? He says, salvation has come to this house. Not because he sold and gave to the poor, because selling and giving to the poor was part of the indicator that he was already saved. So what Jesus does, what God constantly does, is he connects money to your spiritual life. This is why I, as a pastor, see, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your money is one of the biggest spiritual indicators of whether you actually know Christ or not. You know that. It's not about the worship songs you sing. It's not about the things you quote, the Bible passages you quote on Facebook. That stuff's not an indicator of your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is the money. Follow the credit cards. Then you'll know what you love. And so I, within the last year, God actually convicted me because I had this kind of pride about the fact that I never looked at what anyone gave at our church. I was just like, oh, you know what? I'm so, I'm so, I don't need to know what anybody gives. And then God said, what are you talking about? You're the lead pastor. You're supposed to shepherd and lead these people and preach and speak into their life. And you don't know what their money situation is. Don't you understand that their money and their spiritual life are tied so closely together? You can't even shepherd them unless you know about their money. He convicted me on the spot. So I started saying, okay, I want to know what do people give? How am I supposed to lead you and shepherd you across a coffee table and I don't know whether you've ever given a dime to our church because if you haven't, there's a problem. I'm not talking about if you're a seeker, if you're wondering about Christianity. That's not it. It's if you're someone who serves here, this is your church, you get, then part of that's like you got a resource. 
the kingdom, the local church. This is what the gospel calls us to do. And if you don't do that, then you're cheap and you're the monkey with the coconut. And I got to call it out. That's my job. And for those of you who go, oh, I can't believe it. you don't know, talk about money. Hey, you ask him about money. You're making my job really easy. Because all you're doing is waving a flag and saying, I, hey, here's my idol. Talk about money. Here's my idol. Come get it. And it's a constant thing. It's a constant thing in my life. I, I was sitting with a guy. Uh, we were talking this week, sitting in my backyard. And he says to me, <laughs> he says, um, so you know. He goes, I was thinking about this the other day. He's a business guy. He goes, so you know if you move to the States, you could make double what you make now, right? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, but, and he goes, so why don't you? And I said, because it's a kingdom issue. It's a vocation issue. Here's what Jesus did to me. He came into my life and he called me to a place. And until I ever hear him say different, which I don't imagine I will, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm called to be. Because when, when years ago I had gone, as I was talking to you guys last week, and gone and heard the Holy Spirit go, man, you got to plant a church. And then two years later, a year and a half later, I hadn't told anybody that. I hadn't told a soul. I just kept it to myself because I didn't want anybody to know. And then the lead pastor was candidating for the church I was working at. He came in during the candidating process. I met him at the coffee shop. And I, or I met him at the coffee pot before we went into a meeting. I shook his hand. Hello, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Mark. We went into the meeting, sat down. And in the meeting, people said, so what do you want to do with our church? And he goes, I want to plant churches. And they said, well, how are we going to do that? And he honestly looks across the table at me and he goes, why wouldn't we plant a church with that guy? I'm like, we've never even talked. What are you talking about? How is that possible? Because there's a God in the universe and he's working on a level you and I aren't. And he called me to do something. And so I said, so I got to weigh kingdom against possessions. Every day of my life I do that, as you do. And he said, wow, you're right. And then we sat there and he said, but you really could make much more money if you went down to the States. I'm like, all right, shut up. I get it. I don't need it constantly. Every day you and I got decisions to make. Jesus, money, kingdom, possessions. You're going to trade out. You're going to trade out. Here's what you do every time you choose money over Jesus, possessions over kingdom, is you go, I want to trade out Pleasure now. I want to take the pleasure now versus the pleasure then. That's the decision we all make when we do that. I want to take the pleasure now. I don't want it then. Pleasures forevermore, treasures, I'll take them now rather than then. Constantly. The question we all got to ask. Father, I do know that... Um, we're all on a spectrum of just wrestling with our possessions and our finances. And some of us have fumbled those and we just have no possession, no, no money to deal with. Some of us, this is a really difficult topic because we're going through stress and debt and pressure and all those things. I just pray that you'd speak. 
That you'd help us to first, we, we, we logically come at this question and think, well, we got to work out our finances first and then I can work on my spiritual life. I just pray primarily people hear the beauty of what you did on the cross and in the resurrection for them and that they would go, if this is true, this frees me up to not have scarcity in my life at all, to not be afraid that tomorrow I'm not going to eat or I'm not going to have enough or suddenly it's all going to be gone. All those pressures that come with money. I just pray that we'd hear Jesus to the rich young ruler in our life to some measure and degree to go, here's what I want for you. I actually want something better for you. But it's going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean cost. It's going to mean generosity. Getting my spiritual life in order first. Understanding what you've done for us. Giving up your riches and becoming poor so that we might become spiritually rich. Having that change us at the core of our being. That people in this room would even understand and across every, the locations that are watching, they would understand that eternal life is given not because of what we do, but because of what you have done for us. And our response is to simply accept the free gift of grace through repenting of sin, turning from stuff, the idols that are destroying us, that feel so good in the moment, but they're destroying us in the end. To walk from those things and embrace you, to believe. And that there are people in these rooms that actually need to do that right now and just pray and say, thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you've done. I've been holding on to all kinds of idols in my life, things that I've put above you. Please burn them away and let me treasure and value you more than anything else. Let me, let me not go after the gift, but the giver for the rest of my life. And then empower us to do that well. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, guys, thanks so much for being with us. We will see you all next week.